0: But Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real men of genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Edible Underwear Maker. Mr. Edible Underwear Maker. Your true genius combined two of man's favorite things: panties and food. I can taste it now. They're a snack. They're underwear. They're a snack and underwear. Brilliant. Gorgeous grape, rock my world raspberry, bodacious banana. And nothing says, I want you like a man with a mouthful of
1: underpants. So
0: crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Mr. Edible Underwear Maker. Because thanks to you, when it comes to panties, extra large means extra yummy. Bud Light Beer at I suppose Bush St. Louis, Missouri. Go get it. What do you mean, go get it? Man, that ball's way in left field. I don't care what field's in. Willie plays all the Every time we come to the game, you're talking about Willie plays all the feet. That's right. He Let's play. call Willie and ask him. Call him. OK. Hey, Willie. Yes? Are you Willie Mays? Yes. Whose ball was that? Why was it? In left field. Well, that's Irvin's ball. I told you that. You... Every time we come to the game, we got to talk about The next time, I'm going to sit in the grandstand. Say, I... hey, fellas. What's your name? Say who? Say, Willie. Say hey Say who Swinging at the plate Say hey Say who Say really hey, That giant kid is great When he hits the ball It's long gone man it's it further than Campy can. Swings the bat like a little lead pipe. When they reach the ball, it's over right. Say hey, say who, say Willie. Say hey, say who. Swing it at the plate. Say hey, say who, say Willie. That giant kid is great. The bass is like a church of train Swings around, like an aeroplane. plane His cap flies off when he passes good And he heads home like an evil bird Say hey, say who, say let Say hey, say who, at the plate Say hey, say who, say willy, That giant kid is straight Yes, he covers center like he had jet shoes The other batters get the Willie blues Anything hit his way, is out Man, it just don't pay, those guys look loud Say hey, say who, oh. say Willie Say hey, say oh. who, at the Say hey, say, oh. say who, That guy takes his grace in an awful jam, but now he's back, and he's Leo's joy, and Willie's still a growing boy. Say hey, say who, say Willie, say hey, say who, drinkin' at the plate, say hey, say who, say Willie, that giant kid is great, that giant kid is great, say we'll say Willie, you're gonna say Say hey 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez down, a fastball, swung on. it's a deep center field, and uh-huh. Williams goes back and
1: Straight out of God's country, Pauly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents
2: Backwards Day Pod.
1: And now, here's the host of the show, Jake
2: Coppin. Good moment, Baseball Universe. What is up? Uh... Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, half-man, half-podcast machine, back the Captain Kirk's chair, shields down, photons up, prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program. That I call Backwards K-Pod. Where we collect ballplayers and their stories. What's cracking, team heads? Welcome into my baseball Joe. Joe, you freaks. For yet another week of BKP where I do these deep dives into the indelible moments, characters, and ballparks that have manifested themselves in our baseball psyches. Hello, everybody. It's your boy, Jake Robinson. And... The month of April is now in the books. And I can truly feel the show and the season picking up momentum going into May as we have had some really quirky results come back from the first month of baseball, right? I mean, offense has picked up without that shift. I've noticed there are a lot of middle infielders in woeful need of work. I mean, it's funny. All these past whatever years of the shift... And all these armchair batting coaches crying for dudes to play dead ball era horse shit without caring about middle infielders who were basically playing spots on the field instead of like a real position. They wanted guys to slap it or butt it the other way without caring care in the world about how the middle infield play had diminished. And for me, it's glaring on some teams. How bad, you know, some of these middle infielders are without a ship. Steals are out. And look, I've always resided in the AL East. I never really cared about steals. But I got to tell you, I've enjoyed watching my team abuse these big bags now. I mean, I really do. Although, I still want to throw a brick through my TV when a guy gets caught. I, I still hate giving away outs. But my boys, they've been more successful than not. And you... Can apparently teach an old dog new tricks. As I've enjoyed this uh, 1980s Cardinals approach these days for my team personally. Stolen bases per game has risen at a rate of 41.2 percent. That and the pitch clock has impacted this you know up tempo pace, which I never really imagined could happen for baseball. And those violations have steadily dropped to you know pretty much less than one a game now. We've seen bloated payroll teams suffer early injuries and mediocre play. We've seen young, homegrown teams have success. And the first month has had an almost, you know, skinwalker ranch feel to it. What's up is down and what's down is up. Unidentified baseball phenomena. And the head-scratching data that has come back with it. I mean, look at the Pittsburgh Pirates, for example. And, yeah, they're scuffling now with injuries and poor play. And I know a few Bucco fans who have just been pounded over the head with all the seasons. And they're like, fuck, here we go again. Back to the bottom. But I don't look at that team that way. Or, you know, they had an incredible April. You come out, you slash throats, you're going through some adversity now. But you gotta weather the storm, guys. With the understanding that there is more help on the way, including Henry Davis, who has been playing well. I mean, he really has. Uh, saw him play against you know um, the the Bay Sox on this MILB network here. Man, he's showing some power. And if he can keep that going on a Major League Baseball level, I'd take it from me, uh, a stud catcher is going to change your life. How you eat, how you sleep. How you, I'm not going to go there, but you know, how you interact socially with others in a domestic or work atmosphere. It changes everything. Don't get too high or low this season, Pirates fans. Enjoy the ride. Even if the Pirates finish two games under this year. That's still a monumental achievement and a building block for the buckups. But look, That was April, one-seventh of a leg in the Great Marathon, and this is a baseball universe where no one is safe. So, on to May, and this uh, BKP train, and the Major League Baseball season continues to roll on. I truly live for this game, and I'm honored to share that love with you guys on this platform. My goal in life... Before I step out of the cornfields to hang around with you know Buck Weaver and the boys. My goal is basically to spread the gospel of baseball all around the world. This game has been a constant in my life. There's something truly magical about it. I have this primal need in my soul to share this game before I expire. I must leave my voice behind for future generations. I don't know what it is. It's just, it's it's inside of me. You know, like this audio Wikipedia of the great American pastime. And speaking of the gospel of baseball, before we get to this week's topic, I would be remiss if backwards K-Pod... Didn't say a heartfelt farewell to one of the great pitchers of the 1960s and 70s, Mr. Vida Blue. Another one of these guys I admired as a young snake learning the ways of the seams. The flamethrower and southpaw helped lead the Oakland A's to a three-peat World Series titles from 1972 to 1974. He made six All-Star teams. Was a 1970 AL Cy Young Award winner and the AL MVP. Well, he died this past Saturday, May 6, 2023, due to complications from cancer. And his career was one of early brilliance. But it was eventually marred by drug scandals, which I always thought was a shame. Because I feel like his latter years are more remembered than his decade of dominance. And here's the thing, folks. I've covered a little bit about Vida, mostly on the BKP 1985 Pittsburgh Drug Trial Show. On, uh, and on YouTube, I have a pointed sit-down with former Royal Slugger Willie Mays Aikens about Vida Blue. And I'm also slated to do the Black Aces next month. So there will be plenty of Vida Blue on that show coming up. So I'm not going to go real deep, but he was as complex a man as he was talented. He was a great teammate. Who really hated the limelight. So let's take a look at those career numbers. Provide a blue real quick. 17-year career with the A's, Giants, and Royals. 45.1 war. 209 wins. 161 losses. We're at 565 winning percentage. 502 games pitched. 3,343 innings pitched. 13,837 batters faced. 2,175 strikeouts against 1,313 walks, 1.23 WHIP, 3.27 ERA, 3.43 FIP, and a 108 ERA+. And I'm chomping at the bit to do that Black Aces show next month. I I hope you'll be around to check it out when it drops. And it's been a tough year for the A's. They lost their captain, Sal Bando, a few months back. Looks like the team has one point out of the door on the way to Vegas, and now this, the Vita Blue. That brother had about a five year stretch when very few things could touch him. So it is with a tear in my heart and a prayer on my lips. I say to Vita Blue, Godspeed, rest in peace, and time will not dim the glory of your deeds. Just very sad news. How'd you like that I hit that post there, right? That's, 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 that's you know, that's because I'm a professional. <laughs> I make sure, uh, I'm going to make sure that Vida Blue gets us just doing uh, the Black Aces show next month. I think I have something here to lift the mood, though. I spent all week doing the research, watching hours of interviews and games, and... When I wasn't picking my jaw up off the floor, I found myself consumed by our next topic. His charisma, his play, a player I really wish I could have seen perform. And I, yes, I say perform because he didn't play the game. He performed for large crowds who came to possibly see him do something special something they never saw before in a ball field and many times over he would do it and literally leave every onlooker gasping for breath after long drowned out sighs of bewilderment. This week ladies and gentlemen I present baseball a second great rock star in the lineage after Babe Ruth. We're talking the one and only the man the myth the legend the great Willie Mays and let me tell you I'd give my right eye for a chance to see Willie play in real time. Real talk. And before I get after it, I got to tell you, while I'm putting this show together, figuring out how to tell Willie's story without embarrassing myself, I kept thinking about his idol, Jackie Robinson. And I began to think about both of their trajectory courses, through an integrated America of two separate worlds, and eventually both of them would knock down barriers of Major League Baseball and society. However, if I was to have a prism of the great black ball players of that era, I would have uh, Jackie and Willie on opposite ends of that prism. Jackie was under an imposed rule by Mr. Ricky not to fight back for three years. And mr Ricky told the young Robinson I want a guy toughen up not to fight back and man do you feel that my hairs and my arms are literally standing up right now talking about this I, I literally get chills what I wouldn't give to a bit a fly on that wall but I digress as I'm opt to do once I start talking for three years Jackie just took it Made it all about baseball. He shut the bigots up with sheer will and determination. And this is the image of Jackie that Mays idolized. And in many ways, he mimicked Jackie's behavior from those first three years for the rest of his career. While Jackie became more vocal and fiery after that uh, year three. Fighting to go get black people uh, you know, to, to have a place at the table for social and financial empowerment. And Willie, to the consternation of many of the day's civil rights leaders of, you know, his time, Willie kept it about baseball, very rarely coloring outside the lines, politically or socially. And I start our story this week in this fashion because it's my observation, clearly just mine, that Jackie... Well, I think we all know this. Quite honestly, was a fighter. He loved to fight. He felt the responsibility as the first to fight, not just for baseball quality, but the everyday black man or woman trying to do the right thing to obtain the American dream. And the truth is, when I see pictures or videos of Jackie during those first few years, I see those sad Robinson eyes. And to me, now I could be wrong. It's total conjecture. Through observation, Jackie wasn't happy as a passive dodger. He wanted to fight back so bad. He was an educated man of honor. And more than anything, Jackie wanted his goddamn respect that he had fought for all his life. Not being allowed to fight back, it took its toll on our protagonist. Maze wasn't a fighter. Maze was a ball player. Jackie was put here to change the world. Mays was put here to change the game. Thus, I would put Jackie on the far right of that spectrum that I was talking about as someone who would use his platform as MLB's first black ball player since Fleet Walker to radicalize his thoughts and spirit to mark significant change for millions of Americans. And I would put Mays on the farthest left of that spectrum as someone who could capture your respect and love just solely based on the game. And even though he certainly went through a share of indignities as well, Mays had that million-dollar knockout smile that drove fans of all persuasions crazy. And for the first three years of being on the Dodgers, Jackie was sad, angry, alienated. And he was always looking at you as if he was trying to figure out if he could trust you in the end. And folks, I think I had the reason for the two totally different approaches to life and the game of baseball. And in fact, I can give it to you in four fucking words. Leo the Lip Roacher. And if you're a frequent listener to BKP, you know. How I hold the lip in high esteem. He was as seniorly focused as any ball player slash manager has ever been. He didn't care about race or feelings. He would cut his own brother if a black man was better at that position than him. And all he cared about from a baseball perspective was winning chips. He began winning them with the Gas House Gang Cardinals in 1933. And after that World Series title, it became his baseball edition, an annual summertime crusade. In 1947, with Jackie on the precipice of smashing this unspoken gentleman's agreement, Commissioner Happy Chandler inexplicably suspends the lip on some horseshit charges of consorting with unsavory characters. Give me a fucking break. And all that commissioner did was make life for the young Robinson even more difficult. because I'm here to tell you, without a shadow of a doubt, DeRocher would not have put up with anyone in the media, clubhouse, or the opponents giving his superstar grief. He would have ran interference and he would have protected Jackie. And if things went overboard, Leo might just have to answer you with his fucking fist. All those racist taunts and bench jockeying, that would have never gone on with the combative derocher in that Dodgers dugout. And in contrast, Leo was May's manager. He took the homesick boy under his wings, guided him through the transition of becoming a major leaguer, and through Leo's genuine love and protection, Willie Mays would go go on to develop into one of the greatest ballplayers who ever lived. And quite honestly, folks, I'm not sure who could have done it for Willie. You know, as far as what Leo did during that era. Leo was respected. He was hated. But he was not a man you want to cross. And Willie Mays has said many times that Leo was like a, a second father to him. I'm glad that the lip was there for Willie during his tumultuous time in our history. I just kind of wish Happy Chandler wasn't so goddamn holier than thou. And Jackie could have benefited from DeRocha's guidance and protection as well. DeRocha once said of his magnificent ball player, If someone came up to me and they're hitting 450, stole 100 bags, and made spectacular defensive plays every day, I'd still look him in his eyes and tell him, you're no Willie Mays. Willie is the first player I've ever seen who can hit, hit with power, field, run, and throw. I call those the five tools of baseball. That's God-given. You either have it or you don't, and Willie has it. So the term five-tool ball player that all the talking heads throw around today was really a manifestation of DeRocher's Mensa-like baseball brain describing Willie Mays, whom he considered the first ever five-tool player. Just another reason I love the lip. And all seam heads of some age and experience have made like these omnipresent order or list for the greatest baseball gods, myself included, even though I'm not really a list guy. But you ever notice when we speak of our top tens with our fellow seam heads, everyone has Willie in it, of course. I mean, how can he not be? He's Willie fucking Mays, but he is the one player where the arguments are rarely based on raw statistical numbers, even though he has them. It's as if 660 home runs and 3,283 hits sell his talented skill set short. The numbers in Willie's cases are huge, but they've almost become irrelevant. Mantle was like that in a lot of ways for me as well. Another rock star who can do it all. And maybe this is the birth of my baseball rock star theory. When I think of these two. Maybe. Just maybe. Now follow me. When you become a rock star in a game. And currently I'm thinking Otani, Adley. Not everyone is a rock star in baseball. But when you become one. You become even bigger than your mythos. You become bigger than the stats. What do you think about the genesis of my hypothesis here? I think I need to study that some more. With Maze and like other rock stars I've mentioned today, including Ruth, it's not necessarily what you did. It's also how you did it. It even makes an impression on people like myself who never saw Willie play. May scored over 2,000 runs, and as someone who never saw him, I envision that hat flying off his head every single time he rounds third to score, right? Because that is the apocryphal myth that has been created in my mind from all the old fellers in my life who saw him and told me about him. He is credited with over 7,000 outfield putouts. Many were routine basket catches. Some of them were amazing. Many of them were spectacular. But in my brain, they all look like the famous 1954 World Series catch versus Vic Wertz and the Cleveland Indians. They all look like it. Every one of those 7,000 outs that he registered in his career, in my brain, that's what they look like. As someone who never saw him play. His mythos becomes bigger than him. I hope I'm making some sense here. And one of the few memories I have left of my grandfather. I was eight years old. I'm laying in his bed. Uh, we're watching the NBC Game of the Week, Dodgers versus Giants. And he was a huge uh, Dodgers fan. As a black man from Jim Crow, Georgia with the surname Robinson, I mean, he was destined to be a Dodgers freak. So I remember the two teams he loathed were the Yankees and the Giants. And I didn't understand at the time, But, you know, it went way back to the triangle of baseball hate in New York City between those three teams, which I was way too young and innocent to understand any of that. And I asked my grandfather, why do you like the Dodgers so much, granddaddy? To which my grandfather asked me, well, why do you like the Orioles so much? And I really, (laughs) sneaky bastard, I had no answer for that question. I'm eight. I barely even know what an Oriole is, dude. Looking back now, My grandfather loved Jackie. He loved that his Dodgers were the first to field a black ball player. He was proud of that. I get it now. But looking back, it also touches me how he was trying to protect his eight-year-old mulatto grandson from the disgusting nature of racism in this country. I used to pummel my grandfather with baseball questions nonstop, like a scientist looking for my next stream of data. I asked him, was there ever a Giants player you liked? Now, I'll never forget it. He looks me in my eye. Man, goosebumps again. Wow. He looks me in my eye and he said, I love Willie Mays. He was magic. And that was the first time I ever remember hearing of Willie Mays. And I'll never forget the way he said it. He was magic. Magic. So, from that day forward, Willie Mays, to me, was magic. His father, William Howard Mays, was named after former U.S. President William Howard Taft. A huge baseball fan. You can check out his fandom in the BKP, Baseball of the President's Pod. That's available on all platforms. He worked in the steel mills of Westfield, Alabama, just outside of Birmingham. His father was an exceptional semi-pro baseball player for the Westfield team in the Tennessee, Cole, and Iron League. And he was officially called Cat due to his athleticism and his speed. The Mays family had, um, as a whole, they passed their athletic genes on to Willie. His grandfather, Walter Mays, was a sharecropper and a skilled semi-pro pitcher, And his off hours. And his mother, Anna, was a high school track star. She also led the uh, basketball team or high school basketball team to three state state championships. Anna gave birth to the future icon on May 6, 1931. So three days before the show dropped, the baseball universe celebrated Willie's 92nd birthday. He still looks good. Loses in his eyesight a little bit there. He's still quite the storyteller. He has all his cognitive uh, cognitive functions, and I'm truly blessed to tell you the story on this platform. So, Mr. Mays, happy birthday, man! You are a rock star, dude. When his parents separated, Willie stayed with his father and was ostensibly raised by his aunts Ernestine and Sarah. At the age of 10, the family moved out of the company-owned home in Westerfield to Fairfield, another suburb of Birmingham. His father was now working as a Pullman porter on the Birmingham to Detroit trade. And Mays never really stressed his childhood difficulties. He doesn't seem like that person that would really stress a lot of things, but we find out that he does. But, of course, he saw his fair share of Systemic hardships, growing up as a black kid in the deep south during the Great Depression. He attended Fairfield Industrial High School where he was QB1 and averaged 20 points per game on the hardwood his freshman year. And the school didn't have a baseball team, so Willie played second base in center field alongside his father against many opponents who were over two and sometimes three times his age. Not only did he play for the Fairfield Industrial League team, he was also getting paid playing semi pro baseball for the Great Sox. And obviously, both of these teams were segregated, as were their opponents and fans. And Willie begins to capture attention as the games often drew over you know, 6,000 fans. Would say, hey, that's better than what the Oakland A's are drawing right now. Real talk. Willie and his father, Cat, were bonded by their common love for the game. Willie would say his father never pushed him. He had a natural love for the game as long as he could remember. But his dad did encourage him to keep striving to accomplish new heights in his game as long as he enjoyed playing. He enjoyed playing with his father on those muggy Alabama summer days. In 1947, he gets a brief stint with the Chattanooga Choo Choo's, a farm team for the Negro Leagues' Birmingham Black Barons. When he turns 16, his father, Cat, decides it's time for Willie to go out in the world and start his professional baseball career. Cat makes the wise decision of introducing Black Barons manager Piper Davis into his son's life as he would be as influential catalyst in Willie's life As anyone. 1947 That's the year of Jackie. His hero. Maybe he thought to himself. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. I can play in the majors. Cat. Piper Davis. And Willie's high school principal. They insisted that Willie graduate. So he only played on weekends. For the Black Barons. And since he was now getting paid, he was ineligible to play high school sports and he was by far the youngest player on that defending AL Negro League's Birmingham club. At 16 years old, he's a prodigy freak. He rode center field like a grizzled vet and Piper Davis was absolutely amazed with his arm strength. He remembered that from day one of drilling, mills, uh, drilling maze in the outfield. No one had ever seen a center field arm like that in the Negro Leagues. The first year for the Black Barons, Willie batted 239 with an RBI and one still a base in 21 games. And that was the year he met and faced the great Satchel Paige. In their first meeting, their first at-bat, Willie clobbers a double that almost goes out. And as he's standing on second base feeling pretty good about himself, old Satch takes a good look at Willie as if He doesn't want to forget this young man's face of the thousands and thousands of batters he's faced. He points at Willie, and he basically tells him, that's enough of that, young man. I remember your face. And I'm going to feed you fastballs, and you ain't going to touch it next time. Which, you know, Willie's on second base like, whatever, old man. There ain't a fastball on this planet I can't hit. Well, as Willie would tell you, his next 3 at-bats, it went whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Nah, don't mess with Satch. At the age of 17, the Phenom comes up big in some big spots in the Negro American League playoff series versus the Kansas City Monarchs. His two-out bases loaded single in the 11th inning of game one and broke a 4-4 tie and gave Birmingham the victory. His game-tying RBI double in Game 2 and pushed the game into extra innings where the Black Barons outlasted Kansas City to take a 2-0 lead. In Game 3, he hits a double before teammate Jimmy Zapp hits the game-winning dong. Birmingham would go on to win the best of 9 series in 8 games, propelling them into the Negro Leagues World Series where they would face the Homestead Graves. And this would prove to be the last Negro Leagues World Series ever. Even though Mays and the Black Barons would fall in defeat, he is credited with two unbelievable defensive plays in Game 3. He chases down a gap shot off the bat of Bob Thurman in the fourth, and he guns down Buck Leonard trying to go first to third to sixth. A score-trip of ground ball back through the box in the ninth inning by Willie drove in Bill Greeson. For the game-winning RBI. In 1949, Mays batted .311 in 75 games for Birmingham. In 1950, he is destroying baseball. Is batting .330 with a 547 slug. The great experiment is over. And now every Major League Baseball team besides the Red Sox. <laughs> Fucking Red Sox. Every Major League Baseball team besides the Red Sox is scouting the nation looking for their next black superstar ball player. After the 1949 season, Dodgers catcher Roy Campanella. He led a barnstorming team down south. In a game between his team and the Black Barons, Willie throws Larry Doby out at the plate. After catching a ball in deep center, the play impressed Campy and he begs Mr. Ricky to send scouts down to check out Willie. And unfortunately, in another Dodgers butterfly effect moment, Dodgers scout Win Matthews wrote in big letters, the kid can't hit a fastball. Which, first of all, it proves there's no true science to scouting. And two, if May signs with the Dodgers, that certainly changes the course of history in so many ways. And three, So, the Dodgers lost out on first rights to both Roberto Clemente and Willie Mays. If you remember the story on the uh, BKP Clemente show. I mean, that is two of the greatest outfielders ever. You you throw in Duke Snyder. You kind of had Duke Snyder, Willie Mays, and freaking Roberto Clemente in that outfield. The Yankees would have had no chance. I mean, that's just... Three of the greatest outfielders ever, and the Dodgers literally had them all in their grasp. Now, they did keep Duke. Giant scout, Eddie Montague, he would capitalize on Brooklyn's scouting faux pas when he invited DeRocher down to see for himself. And after seeing Mays dominate what is left of the Negro Leagues, he returns to New York, and he tells the front office, There's a kid down in Birmingham, Alabama, right now, kicking everyone's ass in practically bare fucking feet. He is the greatest ball player I have ever seen, and you better send somebody down there immediately with a shitload of cash. Grab that kid. I want him on my team. Montague, Cat, and Young Willie could barely contain themselves as they sat in their little house... Uh, in Fairfield, Alabama to sign a Major League Baseball contract. And like his hero, Jackie, he had accomplished the first leg of his dream. He signed a $4,000 signing bonus and a salary of $250 a month. And for context here, $4,000 in 1950 is worth approximately $50,000 today in the 2023 economy. And $250 a month in 1950 has the purchasing power of $3,131 In the 2023 economy. So Mays reports to Trent, New Jersey. Of the Class B Interstate League. And he's becoming the first black player in league history. One of the worst experiences of his life came that year. In a game at Hagerstown, Maryland. I know it well. The fans called him some of the most vile, disgusting names. That no one should ever have to endure. But Willie kept thinking to himself if I can keep it together here and perform, I can play anywhere. At least they can't touch me. They can yell, cuss, call me names, but they can't touch me. And that's how Will- Willie compartmentalized bigotry in baseball. He found the competition subpar, certainly not up to Negro League standards. He often says there is no B-League with Josh Gibson and S- Satchel Page in it. After going hitless in the first four games in Hagerstown, Mays wound up with 108 hits in 81 games, batting 353 with 55 RBIs. In 1951, Mays is in training with gyro, uh, Giants' top farm club on the farm, uh, Minneapolis Millers of uh, the American Association. And a game was arranged for the Ottawa team to take on the Minneapolis team, mainly because the Limp wanted an up close look at Mays since upper management would not bring him in to the Major League camp. So, in the game, Mays impresses Leo with a dong and a double, and DeRoucher begins lobbying for Willie to get his chance. The owner, Horace Stoneham, rebuffed the lips, please, and Willie begins the season in Minneapolis. Now, the New York baseball Giants, they, they had won two of their first uh, three games, but then they lost 11 in a row. Meanwhile, back in Minnesota. Minnesota, don't you know? Uh, Willie is off to a hot start. collecting 12 hits in his first week. Playing his usual stellar center field. And to now, he's getting antsy. And he's looking for that spark that he knows his kid can provide. By the time, he is showing signs of urgency for uh, Willie's services. And Mays, unaware of all this going on back in New York. He takes his game to yet another level, in May, the Millers are in Sioux City, Iowa to play an exhibition game against a Giants farm Club. The Millers were on a day off, and Mays decided to go watch a movie and unwind. And during the movie, the house lights abruptly came on, the projector stopped, and the theater manager came on the stage and announced, if Willie Mays is here, please immediately report to the hotel manager. Minneapolis manager Tommy Heath informed Mays he was being called up to the big show. The Giants were purchasing his contract at that very moment. And Willie looked back at the skipper and said, tell Leo I'm not coming. And the shocked manager, he calls the lip and tells him, no, Mays ain't coming. And the shock magic. I'm going to tell you, you don't defy DeRocher if you are under his umbrella. You don't tell this guy no. Leo gets on the phone with Willie and he rips into Willie. All the pleading he did, the wheels he had to grease to get him on the goddamn team. And you're telling me no? DeRocher is not... In the mood for this shit. And he tells him. He asks him. Play, you know, plain and simple. What what the fuck is up with you Willie? And Willie. In his beautiful alto voice. He shoots back. I don't feel like I'm good enough. To hit major league pitching Mr. DeRocher. And. For one of the rare. Moments in history. Leo the Lip DeRocher is. Speechless. In his brain, he's wondering, why can you not see what I see, Willie? And he's listening to Willie, who has tears welling up in his eyes. And he's going through the motions here. He's admitting his admissions. He's, he's uh, projecting his admission of fears here. Something he probably hadn't done since playing with his pops back in the day. And Leo... One of the toughest bitches who ever stepped foot on a diamond. He fell in love even more with the kid on the other, on the other end of that phone line. In his head, he loves the kid already, but he's not going to tolerate insolent behavior. He has to figure out a way of getting Willie to do what he wants him to do while giving the illusion that it was something Willie could agree to. So Leo choose the words of his next question very carefully so as not to impose on a future superstar, you know, who's having confidence issues at this point. And, you know, he's, you know, in a vulnerable, mercurial state of mind. So he asked Willie, he says, what are you hitting right now, Mays? And Willie answers, 477. And look, let me put a little context on Willie's stats at this point. He's batting 477. He's on a 16-game hitting streak. He has a .799 slug. And he's on pace to score 150 runs and drive 120. Now, Lee already knows the numbers. He's like a groupie for this Mays kid. Total man crush. He's fully aware of the stats that Willie is putting up. And he can't believe Willie can't realize how special he is. So he says, Mays... Can you hit 250 for me when you get up here? Catch every ball in center field, throw it to the right place. And Mays thinks, shit, I can hit 250, play defense. And his high pitch voice, he tells the lip that yes, he can do that. DeRoger straightens up, puts his game face back on to replace that, you know, caring uncle look, and he tells Mays to get his ass on the first plane to meet the team at Filthy. The local fans of the Millers were so outraged after losing their star player that uh, Giants owner Horace Stoneham bought an ad in the Minneapolis Tribune to quell the anger. And folks, boy oh boy, this is a big one. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Such a complex, larger-than-life baseball icon. Let me get some fluids in me real quick. Collect my thoughts, plot my course for the final two acts of Willie's life. BRB, folks. See you at the other side of the break. Please support your grassroots products who support your grassroots pods.
1: Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tex, Gage Dean, executive producer of Backwards k Pop. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands after. Well, the Fish Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering the fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to damn Cajun no-face spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner, an ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy vet. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy veterans. Crushing big bowls of shelter for fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, mom, where my pole? I'm gone fishing. There's also a Buffalo Wing Hand Cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713 588 Zero two nine zero to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or seven one three five eight eight zero two nine zero to prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com.
2: Shadow. When I was young, I didn't think nobody could
1: hit a ball over my head. I, that's the way I felt when I played center field. And when Big hit the ball, in my mind, I, I, I was always going to catch the ball. There's
0: a wild drive way back in center field, way back, back,
1: it is. It's just a matter how was it I going to get that ball back into the infield. That was the only thing I was worrying about. As I'm running, as I'm running. What do I do with this ball when I catch it? As soon as I catch the ball, I turn around and I throw it back. Uh, I think I was more proud of the throw than it was the catch because only one guy advanced, which was Labrador, went from second to third, and Al stayed on first. And to me, that was a great defeat in itself right there. It wasn't really that hard, but uh, I think a lot of people saw it in the World series. They they picked that catch like the catch of the century.
0: Brought this round to his feet a, a cat, which must have been an
2: optical illusion to a lot of people. <laughs> Okay, so, before I broke out, we pretty much talked about Willie's childhood, growing up in Alabama, becoming a 16-year-old phenom in the Negro Leagues. Uh, the Giants signed him, and he makes his way to the top of the Giants' farm food chain, playing for the Minneapolis Millers, before New York manager Leo DeRoger makes the call for the kid, who actually does not recognize his own greatness, and he needs to be coached into accepting the promotion. And now he's on his way to Philadelphia to join the club. At this time, New York is 17 and 19. They're sitting in fifth place the day before he joins the club on May 25th, 1991. DeRocher immediately puts the 20 year old kid out in center field at Chad Park. Mays goes hitless in his first 12 at-bats, but the Giants win all three games. Despite his batting woes, Leo has not lost confidence in his young Patamont, batting him third when he returned to the bowl grounds to face the Boston Braves and future Hall of Famer Warren Spahn. In his first at-bat versus the crafty, crafty Southpaw, Willie drops Dong high atop the left-field roof for a home run, his first MLB hit. And after that blast, Mays went into another 0 for 13 funk, leaving him with an average of .38. And for the first time in his life, Willie was an abject failure on the diamond. After another day of taking the collar, the competitively prideful Mays sat in his locker with tears in his eyes. And the lip, he sits next to Mays at his locker... And Mays, in his high pitch voice, is saying, I'm sorry for disappointing you and disappointing everyone. And I knew I couldn't hit Major League Pitching. And DeRocha puts his arm around his vulnerable future star. And he told Willie, as long as I'm here, you're my starting center fielder. You are the greatest center fielder I've ever seen in my life. Then, as usual, after DeRocha 10 tender moment. He straightened up and he told Mays to hitch his pants up to give himself a more favorable strike zone before walking off. And Leo always knew how to make Willie feel better about himself. The next game was the start of a 14 for 33 tear. And he is developing into his amazing skill set. The Giants pair him with teammate Monty Irvin, who becomes, you know, this big brother figure for the Mercurial Mays There are times when Mays would struggle and he would climb into Urban's bed and literally fall asleep on some nights. The poor kid from Birmingham is now becoming a star in New York City. And Monty was always there to look after Willie and keep him grounded. They would often walk in the park, talk about life, baseball, race, the struggle. Often they would gather up the kids in the hood and play stickball. The Giants were playing better, but Brooklyn was running away with the league. On August 11th, New York is in second place, 13 games behind the Dodgers, which was actually eight and a half games further back than when Willie joined the club. But this deficit would merely set the stage for the Giants' miraculous 37-7 and record down the stretch to catch Brooklyn, which then set the stage for Bobby Thompson's Shot heard around the world, in which the young rookie Mays got an up close and personal view as he was on deck when the mighty blast occurred. The 20 year old Willie was headed to the World Series to face the vaunted New York Yankees, but the Giants were outgunned, and with no miracles left in the tank, the Yankees won the crown in six games. Mays would bat Amir 182 in his first World Series appearance. Now, Willie would make good on his vow to the lip. He surpassed his uh, 250 threshold to finish with a 274 average at 121 games, which was good enough for NL Rookie of the Year honors. Starting the 1952 season, Mays is batting 236 in 34 games before being drafted by the United States Army as the Korean conflict is picking up steam. It was an obligation that would keep him sidelined until 1954. His last game in '52 was in Evansfield, where the usually hostile crowd with regards to the Giants, they gave Willie a loud ovation and cheer. And I don't know, maybe those were the cheers of gratitude. Now they wouldn't have to worry about that, you know, uh, 24 for a while. And at the time of his departure, New York was only up two and a half games, Against over the Dodgers, but they would lose eight of their next ten and they were never a factor again in the 1952 pennant race. The Army sent Mays to Fort Eustis, Virginia, and assigned him to play baseball for the most part. Leo kept in daily touch with his star and occasionally sent him money. During his time in the service, his mother, who had remarried long ago, dies and to this day, Mays harbors some bitterness that the the U.S. government wouldn't allow him to resume resume his career even though he had to support his 10 half-brothers and sisters since his stepfather was unemployed. By the time he returned to the Giants, 1954 spring training camp, Willie stood a half-inch taller, 10 pounds of muscle heavier. The general consensus among the New York writers is the Giants are going to win the World Series with Willie back in the fold. And all this, despite the Dodgers 105 wins in 1953, on April 5th, Newsweek proclaims that Willie Mays is the difference between ending up at the bottom of the pile or flying a pennant. Bobby Thompson, who hit the shot heard around the world, played in uh, center field in 1951, and again while Willie was serving the country, well, he now became expendable. Upon May's return. So, they deal him to the Boston Braves with Southpaw pitcher Johnny Antonelli. Antonelli was a promising young 24-year-old hurler who finished his breakout 1953 season with a 12-12 and record and a solid 3.18 ERA, 3.44 FIP, and a 124 ERA+. plus. So, pretty good numbers for the youngster. But, you know, you're giving away one of the most popular players ever out of Coogan's Bluff. Not many fans and pundits in baseball uh, could have predicted that Antonelli would lead the league in ERA, ERA+, as well as win 21 games, and he came in third for the NL MVP race. The Giants grind out 97 wins, and in conjunction with Antonelli's career year, Willie finally realizes his potential and is in the way, you know, he's on the way to becoming the ball player that Leo had always envisioned. Before the 54th season, DeRocha tells the baseball beat writers that Willie is going to bat 300, hit at least 30 home runs. And Willie hit Leo's second prediction by midseason as he has 36 home runs on July 28th. And he is well ahead of the fabled Babe Ruth 60 home run benchmark of the time. Leo then orders Mays to stop trying for the fences and go for base hits for the good of the team. And Willie, like a good soldier, shortened in a swing, short to the ball, he hit only five more homers for the rest of the year, but he batted 379 down the stretch. The Giants were in fifth place in a tight race on May 22, 1954. But they would take over the top spot by June fifteenth, and they went into the All-Star break with a five-and-a-half game, Advantage. The Dodgers would hang tough all season, but the Giants clinched the pennant in the final week and would end the five uh, end the year five games over Brooklyn. Willie Mays was now back in the World Series, but this time as a certified star in rarefied air. At the tender age of twenty three, he became the third youngest player in National History to win the league MVP. He wins the batting crown in a tight battle with. Don Mueller, and Duke Snyder. In addition to the batting title, he hammered 41 round trippers. He drove in 110 runs, led the league in triples with 13, and his 667 slugging percentage was tops in the NL as well. And, folks, I need you to consider that from 1931 to 1992, a period of, you know, my Ballmer math here, 62 seasons between these line ball eras here, 1931, 1992, we're all in agreement where it went between these line ball eras. Only two NL sluggers during those years had a higher slug than Willie Mays's 667 in 1954. Those two guys? Well, thank you for asking. Well, one was before that 54 season, and that was Stan the Man Musil in 1948 when he sported a 702 slug and the other was after the 54 May season when Hank Aaron had a 6.69 slugging percentage. 1954 would also be the first of his 24 All-Star Game appearances. But Mays was not done. The stage was set, The unstoppable wheels of history are set in motion, and Mays is on a collision course with his own legendary status, as well as making one of the greatest plays in the history of the fucking game. A play so defining in its moment, it will never die as long as this beautiful game has oxygen. Willie Mays, the rock star of New York, is about to become immortal. The Giants matched up against the favorite American League champion, Cleveland Indians. On September 29th, 1954, game one at the Polo Grounds. New York Yankees, uh, New York's uh, Giants pitcher Sal Barber Magley hooks up against the t- uh, Tri Base Bob Lemon. And with the score at a 2 to 2 stalemate, top of the eighth, Larry Doby on second, Al Rosen on first, and with Cleveland threatening, DeRocher goes to the bully and grabs left hand pitcher Don Little to pace the left-hand swinging Vic works who is, really, he's already punished Magley with a triple, two singles, and three trips to the plate. I mean, he's white hot. Well, Wirtz launches a 2-1 shoulder-high fastball to the deepest, and I do mean the deepest, most expansive part of Polo ground center field directly over the head of Willie. He turns around, He puts his head down. He does an all-out sprint towards the center field wall. And once he is up to maximum acceleration, he puts his head up and he begins tracking this Vic Wertz missile. He's still tracking. Back goes Willie. Back goes Willie. Tracking. Further back. That wall is getting closer. Now, now, now stop. Now, look, boys and girls. This is where it's about to get fun. I want you to think here in slow motion. Willie's tracking. And he knows he's going to catch this thing if it stays in the park. He's still tracking. The game is slowed down. He can't hear the groan of the horrified Giants fans. He hears nothing. But the baseball computer that's running through his brain, spitting out data information in the blink of an eye, he's still tracking. He's about 420 feet from home field with his back to the infield. 430 feet now, still tracking. Back to fast motion, and you see it on film. He taps his glove with his right hand as if to say, I got this all the way, baby. And like an NFL wide receiver going over the top, right up, some poor defensive back, and taking that beautiful a TD The baseball majestically falls into Willie's glove for the out. Right in front of the Polar Grounds warning track. Some 440 feet from fucking home plate, folks. But wait, there's more. While Willie was tracking that ball, he understood the situation and the moment. And he made up his mind that catching that ball was only the first step of this play. He had to get that ball back into the infield as soon as possible to contain Toby and Rosen on the bait pass. So that's what he did. He catches this ball in an act that almost defies science and gravity. He then rolls around in almost one continuous motion to get the ball back into the Giants infield. And Larry Doby, who was very speedy on the base pass, was a serious threat to score had Willie not made that amazing throw back into the infield. He could have probably scored if Willie would have caught it and let his momentum go with him to the wall. He could have scored from second base. Instead, he tagged and advanced to third, while Rosen had to retreat back to first as he was almost at second when the ball fell into Willie's glove. And I'm here to tell you, it's probably the most exciting 6.8 seconds of baseball that you'll ever see in your fucking life. When you factor in the score, the stage, and the stakes that are involved. And Little, having retired words, was immediately pulled for Marv Grissom, who came out came on to face a right-handed batter, uh, tribes manager Al L- Lopez sent to the dish. And later in the uh, clubhouse, Little would tell the scribes, well, I got my guy which was followed by howls of laughter. And many observers felt like that play set the tone for the series and was its most defining moment as the Giants beat the Tribe 5-3 in 10 innings and New York went on to sweep the mighty Cleveland Indians four games to none for the World Championship. Despite Willie's 51 home runs, 127 RBIs and 319 average in 1955, the Giants fell to a disappointing third place showing but he was the seventh player in baseball to reach 50 home runs in a season. In contrast to the year before, DeRocher ordered Mays to swing for the fences. He led the NL in triples and slug, and he was second in stolen bases with 24 in 28 attempts. DeRoche's personality and his outspoken swagger, it was tolerated during the pending, pending and World Series winning seasons, but... With the Giants and their Paul from grace in the third place, the, they they announced that the lip was being replaced by former Giants infielder Bill Rigney for the 1956 season. And DeRocha and Willie shared an intimate moment on the final day of the 1955 season. DeRocha called Willie into a clubhouse bathroom and he told a star he was the greatest baseball player he ever saw in his life. And I'm telling you this because I will be back next year. To which Willie asked, you won't be there to help me? And Leo looked Mays in his eyes and said, Willie Mays don't need help from anyone. And then he kissed the superstar on the cheek and left. Mays was widely considered as the best all-round player of the 1950s. His defensive prowess and his surface-to-surface rocket launcher of an arm were already well-established. After he won the batting crown in 1954 and he hit 51 home runs in 1955, he led the league in steals four years in a row beginning in 1956. His four-year totals of 40, 38, 31, and 27 were punctuated by his 78% success rate. The 1956 season is marked by Willie's troubling marriage to Marguerite Wendell. On the field, Mays was slightly brilliant, 36 home runs, 84 RBIs, and a .296 batting average as the team fell to 6th place. The next season, he rebounded to hit .333 with 35 bombs, 97 ribs, and he also won the first of 12 consecutive gold gloves in that award's inaugural year. During the nineteen fifty-seven season, the unemployed DeRocha, publicly blasted the Giants and manager Bill Rigney while still praising Mays, and Mays felt the need to apologize on Leo's behalf. But he would admit later, there was a coolness between he and new skipper Rigney, and he acknowledged that neither man ostensibly gave the other guy a chance. At the end of the 1957 season, the Pirates lost to the last place Pittsburgh Pirates at the Polo Grounds 9-1 where Mays had two of the team's six hits for the last Giants game ever played at Polo Grounds. The end of the season saw the exodus of two New York baseball teams in the west to the west coast. The Brooklyn Dodgers left for LA and the Giants into the arms of San Francisco. And San Francisco did, didn't exactly welcome Mays with a open arms though. That same year Soviet dictator Nikita Khrushchev was treated more graciously in San Francisco than Mays. Uh, and that led columnist Frank Connor to remark that San Francisco is the damnedest city. They cheer for Khrushchev, but they boo Mays. He had the toughest time buying a house and so-called liberal neighbors, made petitions to keep him and his wife out of their neighborhoods. The man who was you know, who was treated like royalty in New York City, was facing the harsh realities of a city that was now relegating him back to second-class citizenship. In many ways, Mays was looked at as, you know, the old New York past. While the city, by the bay, they wanted to embrace something completely theirs and theirs alone. He also had the temerity to play in center field in Seal Stadium, where native son and town hero Joe DiMaggio once played. And he was black. Uh, the brick that came crashing through his window and had to reflect at least one of those three uh, viewpoints I just told you there. Relations between Mays and Rigney are
1: continually,
2: continuously strained, and that hasn't helped uh, that is announced when the manager made lots of predictions to the San Francisco media about Mays challenging Roos' record before the 1958 season. He didn't come close. And the ascension of rookie first baseman Orlando Cepeda likely resulted in the San Francisco media voting Cepeda for the team's MVP despite Mays having the better numbers. In 1959, Mays suffers his first brushes with injuries, In a spring training game, he severely cuts his leg on Red Sox catcher Sammy White's shin guard. That required 35 stitches, two weeks on the sidelines. While the Giants cling to the first place in early August, Willie breaks his right pinky, sliding back into first after a single. And while he did hit 16 more home runs, the team fell off and finished in third. Poor games behind those goddamn Dodgers who were going to win the World Series. Mays would finish the year batting 313 with 34 home runs. After the struggles in the final years uh, at the Polo Grounds, the San Francisco Giants began amassing a core of ballplayers who are arguably one of the greatest collection of talents to never win a chip. After Cepeda's arrival in 58, power hitting first baseman Willie McCovey steps on the scene, uh, winning the third Giants Working of the Year trophy in nine years. Mays and McCovey would form one of the most powerful left-right duos in the history of the game. They were eventually joined by third baseman Jim Davenport, shortstop Jose Bagan, catcher Tom Haller, second baseman Chuck Hiller, Hall of Fame pitchers Juan Marichal, Gaylord Perry, as well as uh, these three Dominican outfielders, the Alou brothers, Felipe, Matty, and Jesus. The Giants win 902 and 704. From 1960 to 1969, just barely behind the winningest baseball team in the 60s, the Baltimore Orioles, in their 911 wins. But San Francisco only played in one World Series during the decade, losing to the Yankees in seven games in the 1962 World Series. In contrast, the Dodgers finished 24 and a half games while the Giants in the win column during the 60s, but they went on to win three World Series, winning two on the strength of their arms behind pitchers Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale. The problem with recounting Mays's career is that all of his great stats, they, they kind of run together. Although he won two MVPs in 1954 and 1965, he really could have won the MVP virtually every year because he seemingly had the same numbers year in and year out. Yeah, it's kind of like Michael Jordan basketball, you know, when he was on top of the game. He won twelve gold gloves, even though he didn't. Uh, even though they didn't create the award till his fifth season end. he played in twenty four All Stars. Started eighteen of them in center field. Eleven times he played the whole game. By his mid career, he is not merely a star player. His star shines brighter than Jupiter. He is the star, the greatest ever. Willie enjoyed his last great season in 1966. He turned 35 years old that season, played in 152 games, hit 37 home runs, drove in 103, and scored 99 runs. He hit 288, uh, he hit, and he hit 288. The, the, the 103 RBI marked his eighth consecutive season of 100 RBI or more. He continued his assault on the career home run record, passing Ted Williams and his 521 in June of 66. Then passing Jimmy Fox, 534 in August, the day after tying Fox to say kid dropped dong on Ray Washburn's lips for number 535, moving him to second only to Ruth. In May of 69, Willie becomes only the second player to hit 600 home runs and he also surpassed 300 stolen bases. In 1970, the Sporting News named Willie Mays the player of the 1960s decade. On July 18th of that year, Mays singles off a exposed pitcher Mike Wegener, for his 3,000th career hit. Around this time, it seemed customary to watch Willie set all kinds of baseball standards. By 1972, the aging center fielder was traded to the Mets. He returned to play for the Mets. Uh, uh, he returned to play for New York. Uh, the day after the trade, the Giants retired as number 24. In his first game as a Met, Willie went yard, broke a 4 poor, poor tie, but proved to be the game winner. And by now, Mays is but a part time player and a shadow of his once brightest star. And I, I don't really want to talk about it, quite honestly. I, know it's, I, I hate it. At the onset of 1973, Mays announces this will be his last season. His knees were giving him problems, one leg. Needed constant draining of fluids. He suffered a cracked rib that season. And the team would make the NLCS versus the Reds. Willie's first appearance on the field of the series was really as a peacemaker when Pete Rose and Bud Harrelson began brawling out there at second base after Rose slides in hard on Harrelson. The IRA fans began throwing bottles and debris at Pete Rose out in left field, and Reds manager Sparky Anderson pulled his players off the field. The umpires threatened the, the Mets with a forfeit, so Willie, Yogi Berra, and Tom Seaver out, walked out to left field and pleaded with the Rowdy fans to calm down. Once the crowd settled and the play resumed, the Mets won 9-2. Mays would play uh, in one, only one playoff game, Game 5, the decisive win to put the Mets in the World Series. The Mets would fall to the dynastic Oakland A's in the World Series, and Mays had two misplays in the outfield during the season. Willie's last career hit was his game-winning hit in Game 2 off of Raleigh figures a bouncer over Raleigh's head and into center field. The Mets would lose the series at 7, and teammates like Jerry Kuzman and Tug McGraw, they lauded his impact on the team. Five years after his retirement, 1979, he was elected to the hall in his first year of eligibility. And folks, I could go on and on about Willie. This is really, probably, I mean, it's like a three-part show, honestly, if I wanted it to be. But at some point, the show is kind of end, right? So, you yeah, know, maybe I'll do something, you know, later on. I mean, there's just so much about him. But look, ladies, gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages. I'm going to wrap it up. This is the story of the baseball rock star, Willie Mays. I know a lot of stuff I didn't get to, like his classic basket catch, you know. He picked that up playing during his military service, found it comfortable. He liked that his arm was in better position for him to make, you know, snap throws and missile launches. His nickname, the Say Hey Kid, was given to him because of his... Propensity to forget writers' names, and he always said, Hey kid, to the writers whom he forgot. So, you know, they just came up with, you know, they called him the Say Hey Kid. Just so much about this classic icon to learn about his autobiography, Say Hey is a must read. All kinds of articles on the Google machine, hours and hours of video and interviews on YouTube. Do yourself a favor if you have a couple hours by the computer. Jump into that fucking rabbit hole and see what you dig up. I'm giving you the template. Now, go crazy. Also, HBO Max has a bio on Willie. I haven't watched it yet because I don't want it permeating into my story perspective. But I think I'm going to make some chicken alfredo here, and some garlic bread, sit down with flour, and enjoy some pasta. Finally watch this HBO documentary. Backwards K Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. Or, you can swing on over to com to hear any and all of my shows in my catalog. If you enjoyed this show, you might want to check out the uh, BKP Polar Ground show, the Gaylord Perry bio, and I have a lot of stuff about Leo the Lip, most notably the Gas House Gang, all this and more. In the Backwards K pod archive. And before I bounce. Let's take a look at the incredible numbers. Of the Say Hey Kid. Willie Mays. Willie Mays was born May 6, 1931. Which makes him now. The oldest living Hall of Famer. On the planet. 92 years and 3 days old. 23 year old. MLB baseball career with the New York and San Francisco Giants, as well as that stint with the Mets. His 156.1 war is the fourth highest in baseball history behind only Ruth, Walter Johnson, Cy Young, and Barry Bonds, his godson. The A kid led the league in war nine times during his career. 3,005 games played, 9th most in the history of the game. 3,293 hits, which is 13th most. 660 home runs, the 6th most in baseball history. 7th all-time in runs with 2,068. 525 doubles, 141 triples, 1,909 RBI, which is the 12th most in MLB history. 339 stolen bases, 103 times caught. It's 1,464 walks It's the second most in baseball history, 1,526 strikeouts, and total bases. You know, you guys know, I, I'm bullish on total bases. So, let, you know, let's see here. Willie had 6,080 total bases. It's the fourth most in the history of the game. Get the... A 301-384-567 slash and a 940 OBS. His 155 OBS plus is the 25th highest in baseball where he sits tied with the trio of Hall of Famers in Mellon, Joe DiMaggio, and Hank Aaron. His 7,024 putouts in center field. It's the most ever at that position. 24-time All-Star, 2-time All-Star MVP, 1963 and 1968. Only five players have accomplished this. Uh, that's Willie, Steve Garvey, Gary Carter, Cal Ripken Jr., and Mike Trout, who is the only player to have done it back-to-back seasons. 12-time Gold Club Award winner, two-time MVP, 1954 and 1965. One batting crown in 1954. In 1979, he was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, with a 94.7 vote total. Uh, that's 409, uh, 432 votes. And I gotta ask myself, who are those 23 people who didn't vote for fucking Willie Mays? You gotta be kidding me. Willie doesn't get 100%, but a closer is the first to do it? I mean, it's nothing short of a goddamn ridiculous. How does Willie get left home with 23 ballots? More and more I realize. Yeah, the baseball hall of fame is a joke. But that's another story for another pod. And good gracious, man. I mean, first of all, how is that even possible? Hey, you know, 23 people didn't vote for Willie Mays. I mean, it's crazy. In 1979, he was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. And, you know, 23 people didn't vote for him. I, I just don't get it. I will never charge you for the baseball content here at Backwards K-Pod. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play crowdsourcing. Uh, I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. I want to thank you guys for joining me in my baseball dojo this week. And I promise to try to be better next week. So, with Willie Mays now added to my collection of ballplayers... And he's getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror. I chop the head off of our Baseball Hydra. Only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, we'll be taking a look at the one and only George Brett. And George was one of my favorite ballplayers as a kid. Love me some fucking George. Can't wait to dig into his story. But look, that's another story. Pour another pod here at Backwards K-Pod. And look, if any of y'all are looking for me, you're looking for the snake, you want to find the snake, you want to tell them what's up, I ain't hard to find. The show Twitter handle is at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal handle is at J-Robbie1, that's J-R-O-B-B-I-E, and the number one. You can email the show backwardskpod at gmail.com. We're on YouTube and Instagram at Backwards K-Pod. But you can always find me chilling with my krill at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, our pretty private Facebook group page. Answer the questions, join on in on the fun, and welcome to my highly, highly dysfunctional c family. There is no, uh, you know, thanks for hanging out with me this week. Willie, you know... He's a Shaolin master. Fucking samurai. And I'm so glad to tell a story on my platform. He should never be forgotten as he is truly. You know, fuck the top ten. He's top five, baby. The great Say Hey Kid, Willie freaking Maze. Okay, I need to rest. This took a lot out of me this week. But I'll be right here. Next week, right as rain, and I'll be talking some George Brett. Uh, God damn, my catalog slaps. I ain't even bullshitting you. I mean, look at what we have built here, you cement freaks. I'm nothing without you guys. So look, if you're on Apple or Spotify, please rate and review me as you see fit. I ain't stirred. It's how I beat the dog. It gives me a stronger presence in the search engines, and allows me to continue to do what I love to do most in this world, and that's talk baseball to the great people such as yourself. In this booth, on this format, I'm fucking Willie Mays. I do what I do when I do, it, and I do it better than anyone else. And that is a testament to the great audience in the 35 countries around the world that listen to me. I am so proud of what we have built here. And I got a whole lot left in the tank, baby. I'm just getting started. Here at Backwards K-Pop. Where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you keep your kid sitting on the couch with their nose in their phone. By all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session last year in the archives, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, freaks. Peace.